the actor won't get off stage. Imagine that. Um, and I, I should just quickly say we have an... Ex Gats is pretty much sold out, but um, it wouldn't surprise you to learn, but we have an exclusive offer um, for people here in the room. So if you quote Salon Gats, you can get tickets that normally cost £117 um, for the princely price of 77 including two glasses of champagne. So there you are. Ooh, nice. So um, anyway, so our next guest... Stay with me. Our next guest... Our next guest has a remarkable tale to tell. Um, shh, 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 at the back, or some people, would somebody faint? Okay. People always help the fainters. It's a very kind room. We had two last time. So, no, I'm not joking, they do. So, um, so our, our next guest has a remarkable tale to tell. Um, the Jazz Baroness is a thrilling journey from England's stately homes to the battlefields of Africa and Europe, passing under the shadow of the Holocaust and finally to New York. Jazz and Jews. Um, Baroness Panonica de Konigsvarta. <laughs> she, she, she'll correct it when she gets up on stage. Was, was Rothschild by birth, Baroness by marriage, and Rebel by choice. She was also the great aunt of our next guest. Please welcome Hannah Rothschild. <laughs> but I'm not quite sure how long they last, so will you stop me when you think it's time to intervene? Glasses, my mother would say, keep your legs together. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me a little hint if I, yes, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> right, Ga gather. Okay, my grandfather Victor was the first person to mention her. He was trying to teach me a simple 12-bar blues, chord, but my 11-year-old hands were leaden and too small. You're like my sister, he said. You love jazz but can't be asked to play it. <laughs> Which sister, Miriam or Liberty, I asked, trying to ignore his barb. No, the other one. What other one? Later that day, I found her in the Rothschild family tree, Pannonica. Who's Pannonica? I asked my father, Jacob, her nephew. She's always called Nika, but beyond that, I don't really know. No one ever talks about her. Our family is so large and scattered that he didn't seem surprised to have mislaid a near relation. I was not put off. I asked another great aunt, Nika's sister Miriam, the renowned scientist who divulged she lives in New York, but wouldn't offer any further information. Another relation told me she's a great patron the Peggy Guggenheim or Medici of jazz. And then there were the whispers. She's known as the Jazz Baroness. She lives with a black man. <laughs> she flew Lancaster bombers during the war. That junkie saxophonist Charlie Parker died in her apartment. She had five children and 306 cats. <laughs> True. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> sorry legs. Um, <laughs> the family cut her off. No, they didn't. 20 songs are written about her. It was 24, actually. She raced Miles Davis down Fifth Avenue. Did you hear about the drugs? She went to prison so he wouldn't have to. Who's he? Felonious Monk, of course. So what is Nika like? I asked Miriam again. Vulgar. She's vulgar. What does that mean? 
Miriam would not elaborate, but she did give me her sister's number. When I went to New York for the first time in 1984, I rang Nika within hours of arriving. Uh, would you like to meet up? I asked nervously. Wild, she replied, in a decidedly ungreat aunt, 71-year-old kind of way. Come to the club downtown round midnight. Round midnight? This area had yet to be gentrified and was known for its crack dens and muggings. How will I find it? I asked. Nika laughed. Just look out for the car. And then she hung up. The car was impossible to miss. The large, pale blue Bentley was badly parked, and inside it, two drunks lolled around on leather seats. It's good they're in there. It means no one will steal the car, she explained later. <laughs> Try it. It works. <laughs> Set back from the street was a small door leading down to a basement. I knocked loudly. Minutes later, a hatch in the upper door opened, and a dark face appeared behind the grill. What? he said. I'm looking for Pannonica. Who? Pannonica, I said in my slightly desperate English tones. Um, they call her Nika. Oh, you mean the Baroness. Why didn't you say so? Sorry about my accent. I'll take lessons later. <laughs> the door swung open to reveal a tiny basement room, shabby, smoky, cramped, where several people sat listening to a pianist. She's at her table. Nika was the only white person, and easy to spot, sitting nearest the stage. She hardly resembled the woman I'd studied in our family photograph albums. That Nika was a ravishing debutante, her raven hair tamed and dressed, her eyebrows plucked into fashionable arches, and her mouth painted to form a perfect beasting pout. In another portrait, a less soigné Nika, her hair loose and face free of makeup, seemed more like a Hollywood version of a Second World War double agent. The Nika before me looked nothing like her younger self. Her astonishing beauty had since waned, and those once delicate features bordered on the masculine. Her voice will always stay with me, a voice that had been pummeled like a shoreline by waves of whiskey, cigarettes, and late nights, a voice that was part rumble, part growl, and was frequently punctuated by wheezy bursts of laughter. Smoking a cigarette in a long black filter, her fur coat draped over the back of a spindly chair, Nika gestured to an empty seat, and picking up a teapot from the table, poured something into two china cups. We toasted each other silently. I'd been expecting tea. Whiskey bit into the back of my throat. I choked, and my eyes watered. Nika threw back her head and laughed. Thanks, I croaked. She put her finger to her lips, and nodding at the stage said, Shh, just listen to the music, Hannah. Just listen. At the time, I was 22 and failing to live up to the expectations, real or imagined, of my distinguished family. I felt inadequate, incapable of making it on my own, and yet unable to make the most of the privilege and opportunity available to me. Like Nika, I was barred from working in the family bank. The founding father, N.M. Rothschild, had decreed that women were only allowed to act as bookkeepers or archivists. Caught in a holding pattern between university employment I was desperate to work at the BBC, but only managed to collect letters of rejection. Although my father, who'd followed in the family tradition of banking, found me various jobs, he's probably downstairs, 10 pin bowling, aren't we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. 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 Um, 
Anyway, I wasn't looking for a role model, but I was looking for options. And at the heart of my search was a question. Is it possible to escape from one's past, or are we forever trapped in layers of inherited attitudes and ancient expectations? I glanced across the table at this newly discovered great aunt, and I felt a sudden, inexplicable surge of hope. A stranger walking into the club would have seen an old lady sucking on a cigarette, listening to a pianist. They might have wondered how this fur-coated, pearl-wearing dame was doing, swaying to the music, nodding appreciatively at particular solos. But I saw a woman who seemed at home and who knew where she belonged. And she only ever gave me one piece of advice. Remember, there's only one life. I think we'll have another bit of that, shall we? Yes, yes. Well, this bit isn't quite so jolly. <laughs> but this bit's really depressing. Are you sure? You like that? Yeah? Okay, all right. Okay, so my great-aunt Miriam, who, who um, was known as Queen of the Fleas, was, um, died a few years ago, age 96, and she was, she's the person who kept the family together. She was absolutely terrifying, okay? And I was terrified. Everyone was, but I was frightened of her. So I went to see her to talk about this project um, and to try and get her blessing. Okay. And I explained what I wanted to do, and there was a terrible silence, and then she said, Do you know anything about anything. <laughs> Miriam was furious when she found out how little I knew about our Rothschild forebears. We were having lunch alone at Ashton World, her house. My mistake had been to try and bluff my way through family history. Attempting to get anything past Miriam was a bad idea. I was uh, never terribly interested, I confess, before adding the, the postscript, until now. <laughs> not interested until now are you aware that a person's life is shaped long before they're born you know we don't just appear from thin air do you understand anything about genetics or chromosomes even the bible teaches us that the sins of the fathers are visited on at least four generations she said glaring at me i felt foolish and defensive family history i reasoned was something to explore in one's dotage along with God and gardening. <laughs> Besides, Nika was a 20th century figure, I thought. But running out of excuses for delving into the past, I booked a flight to Frankfurt, where the Rothschild story had begun. I arrived in Germany one wet winter's evening, armed with an address and a camera. I'd gone in search of the birthplace of the Rothschild family and only found a swirling mass of concrete and tarmac. This was the one feature the Allies hadn't flattened during the raids of 1944 and it's a small section of, work, of wall. The autobahn covers everything and the tiny street where the founding father, Mayor Amschel, was born in 1744. In the Rothschild Museum and Archives, I began to piece together our history. In 1458, the Emperor Frederick proclaimed that Jews were allowed to remain in Frankfurt only if they paid to live in this cramped, gated street about 50 yards long on the northeastern edge of town. Jews lay in a narrow thoroughfare only as I said, about 50 feet long, was meant originally to be home to 100 people. But by the 15th century, more than 500 families lived there. And by the 18th century, 3,000 people somehow squeezed into, into Judengas. Efforts were made to restrict the population by allowing no more than 12 weddings a year, and only if a bride and groom had reached 25. With Jews being forbidden, forbidden from owning land, from farming, from entering public parks, inns, or coffee houses, 
from going with 100 feet of the town's cathedral, their options seeking a profession beyond usury and other forms of trade were negligible. The more I read, the more chastened I felt, and Miriam's, Miriam's anger was well-founded. I'd taken my family's history for granted, never bothering to investigate the early struggle. And what made their achievements still more staggering, reading about the lane, was that the Rothschilds had come from a place of such indescribable squalor that Europeans, including George Eliot, made it a must-see attraction as part of their world tour. Goethe wrote, the lack of space, the dirt, the throng of people, the disagreeable accents of that voice, Altogether, it made the most unpleasant impression, even upon the passerby who merely glanced through the gate. Apparently, when Goethe finally summoned up the courage to enter the Judengast, he was surprised to find that the, exact, that the human beings, the inhabitants were human beings after all. Um, and one could not help but admire even the obstinacy, obstinacy with which they adhered to their traditional ways. Another traveller who, who witnesses Hölzer was less complimentary even those in the blooming years of their life look like the walking dead. Their deathly pale appearance sets them apart from all other inhabitants in the most depressing way. It was hardly surprising that the life expectancy of a Jew in the ghetto was 58% lower than that of a Gentile living a mere few streets away. If you were born there, Miriam said when I went back and told her what I'd found out, you would want to escape too. And with that, she wheeled her wheelchair out of the room and didn't talk to me for three weeks. <laughs> uh, those, those are some incredible ants there, Miriam and Nika. Um, so let's just find out, find out more um, about Panonica. That's incredible, the, the way you say her name. She, was, she started off... Conventionally, she was married at what age? Uh, she married at 23. She was, she was brought up really just to kind of to get married. I mean, that was what she was trained for. They didn't waste education on the women in my family. That was, you know, that seemed to be a frightful waste of time. So she was basically kept in the nursery, and then it's and the only time she was allowed out was to go hunting. So she did a lot of hunting all through the winter. But in the summer, it was torture, quite literally torture. And then she was unleashed on the debutante's scene. So let's just before we get to the debutante scene, yeah. let's talk about what, what life was like there, because there are some incredible details mm. um, to do with the, the, the level of grandeur. I mean, we think that kind of Russian oligarchs now have a level of a kind of swank. This is a whole other level of, of privilege. I mean, the, the story about the, the cow's milk and the, the story about oh, the cherries yes. of the two. Oh, yeah, it was marvellous. At, at breakfast, you were offered a choice of longhorn, shorthorn, or jersey with your tea. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, they were, and then there was seen as much, you know, to picking cherries is kind of frightfully, you know, um, is there a feedback? Sorry, it was was seen as rather kind of um, yeah, common. So they used to get the poor gardeners to carry the actual trees around the table, so you could <laughs> staggering round. Um, there was a cousin called Alfred who decided that it'd be very amusing to have his own orchestra. So he had an orchestra, which of course, which, which he used to bring out every time he wanted to conduct them. And he conducted them only with a diamond encrusted baton. <laughs> Great, no? I mean, you know, why not? Um, so that's the, that is the, the kind of the childhood that she, that, that, yes, that she there had. Yes, there was that. But then you see, there was a kind of, there was that on the one side. But actually, what was, what, the real tragedy of this family was that they got themselves you out. You say this of family, it's your family. My family, thank you. My family. Um, thanks. 
Um, I mean, I think about my mother again. <laughs> so, um, but the real I'm tragedy. Making you think about your mother. Well, no, I just the family. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they got themselves out of this ghetto, and they got themselves out of. You know, I, I could have gone on reading that. You know, and well, that's incredible. I it mean, is. You can, it is you can understand. I mean, exactly as she said, why why they would want to get away. Yes. And the, I think what's interesting is is that just kind of flashing forward a little bit is that Nika ends up. And she doesn't end up. She chooses to be in New York for reasons we'll go into in a second. Yeah. But there, um, you know, she spends she spends time with. She lives with a black man. She hangs out with mm. black people. And actually, the restrictions that are placed on the lives of black people at that point in New York are, are in some senses, similar to the restrictions that are placed on Jewish people then. Right? Well, back in in the ghetto. Yes, yeah. I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, no freedom. Um, pretty much penned in. in you know, she said she was demand. a freedom fighter. She said she didn't seek to be a freedom fighter, but she saw an awful lot of help was needed, actually, which is different. But just to go back to that thing, because there was this quite interesting thing about the dichotomy, really. So she has, on one hand, this very, very luxurious life, but running in parallel to that and a kind of terrible legacy from, her, from the ghetto was that even when the Rothschilds managed to get out of their ghetto and even when they got to Europe, they were still ostracised from society as Jews. And one of the tragic consequences of that was that they found it very difficult to find people to marry in their new communities, and so they intermarried, and actually they created a genetic time bomb. And they became, at first it was seen as eccentricity, but actually by the time that Nika came along, um, her father Charles and her uncle were very, very seriously depressed and unable, unable to cope with life. So that it was this strange mixture of growing up with incredible luxury, and yet under the spectre of terrible mental illness and what went with that. I mean, we know that it was depression, don't we? I mean, schizophrenia. Well, you know, I find, I, I, I'm slightly nervous about because schizophrenia is a term now that covers everything. A range. A range of stuff. So, in fact, um, she, he, her father was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and they, the family in Europe knew Freud, and, and they knew Jung, and so one of the options was to try and put, them, put him, the father, under... In fact, they went for Jung in the end. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'd gone for Freud. It would be different, by the way. But, um, but you know, it is a, it is a tragic thing that they they managed to get themselves out of this appalling situation, and and create a kind of bedrock of of money and, and in theory safety. But actually, they have no tools to fight against this great weapon of of depression. Um, when speaking of safety, um, she. Nika marries the Baron, who, who doesn't, who seems like a kind of control freak, and who seems yep. contrary to a lot of it. I mean, maybe she's seeking something that a quality she doesn't have in herself. It's it's hard to understand why 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 she would marry him, given how their marriage played out. But they end up living in France in this mm. kind of incredible house, um, and the Nazis are marching across, um, and they're getting closer and closer, and 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 she stays. She she doesn't she doesn't want to go. What why why did she think why do you think she stayed so long? Why would I, I think minute. like many Jews in, in Europe and in France, they didn't really quite believe it, actually. They didn't quite believe that what was happening. And so you people like Irene Nemirovsky and various other people who just didn't get out or got out too late. And she was also, you know, she was frightfully spoilt and unrealistic. There was that part of her. So she had an aeroplane. She thought, well, I can just fly. I just fly it out. But she didn't have enough petrol. No, she didn't have petrol to fly it out. So in the end, she, had to, she actually did a maid. Her husband, you know, in a rather cavalier way, had left a little kind of map. This is how you get to kind of... Dieppe or whatever they were trying to get to. And so she did manage somehow to get there. But you know, it was a close shave. She, she left the, the day before the Nazis arrived. It was that close. 
And she arrived home sort of fresh-faced as if from a picnic. That's said, right. Said her, her mother she... said, you're marvellous, Nico. She arrived as fresh as a daisy. She'd just gone on a picnic or something. You know, and she'd had this unbelievable trip trying to get her and her kids you know, across France you know, against the sea of refugees to England. So she, she gets... When does she hear the music which summons her into the world yeah. of jazz? Well, this is an extraordinary story, which, you know, again, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, come off it, you know. And, um, but she'd been to see a friend of hers called Teddy Wilson, who's a great jazz pianist. And he said, have you, I want to play your record. And she said, look, I've, I've got to catch a flight. Her family at that moment were in Mexico. Can you hurry up? I've really got to catch this flight. And he said, okay, just, I'll just let me play it once. It's only three minutes long. So he puts it on the turntable, and it's like a vinyl version of a spell being cast. And... I've heard her tell this story, so you know I can only say it's true, or it's true to her. And she played it 20 times in a row, and she never, ever went home. That was it. She left. And she cut her ties. And she felt that it... And, it, of course, the record was Round Midnight by Thelonious Monk, and she felt that it was almost kind of calling her into a different life. And so she goes to New York, she checks into the Stanhope Hotel... Yeah. Um, and because she's not slumming it, um, she's she's not cut herself off that much. She's cut herself off, but she's she hasn't cut off the bank balance. No, she's she's smart, right? Yeah, no, she's yeah, not she's that. Hedging, hedging. Um, and she gets to New York, and she decides that she's gonna she's gonna find Thelonious Monk. Now she doesn't find him straight away, yeah. but she does eventually find him. And, yeah. and what happens then? Well, she said she said we hung out, we had a ball, and and actually, of course, you know, everyone wants to know what kind of ball they had. And, or how um, many. <laughs> I don't think my mother would like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, were, were, they, were they lovers? I mean, because he was married. He was married to Nelly, and he stayed married to Nelly to the end, although, in fact, he lived with Nika for 10 years, the last 10 years. You know, I think, you know, dot, dot, dot. dot, I, dot, I, dot. Actually, okay, let me be honest with you. I actually don't think they did. I have a feeling it wouldn't have lasted if they had done. Right. Unfashionable. No, 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 no. You would know more than anybody else. It's just no, I wouldn't. You know. I really wouldn't. You don't. You never know. You never know about other people's relationships. The only thing I've learnt, and don't you think, is that you cannot ever tell. I'm not sure. I mean, I think I, I, I wasn't sure if you were sort of genuinely delia dying to leave a space for interpretation. You know, but I think what was most interesting to me was about the yeah. fact that he was shared by two women, and that kind of Ian Forster, Bob Buckingham way. You know, there were three yeah. three sides to the to the relationship. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was fascinating that Nellie yeah. put up, well, she didn't put up with it for so long, but she, you know, she had this other crazy white English woman yeah. from God knows where in her life. I so. think Nellie was actually quite pleased in some ways. You know, they'd, they'd been living below the breadline. They'd been absolute in complete penury. He'd lost his card. He'd lost the right to play. And along comes somebody who thinks that he's the greatest thing in the world, who wants to support him, who's perfectly happy to put up with his very <laughs> peculiar behaviour. Um, you know, and I think Nelly thought it's all right. I think she's probably quite pleased. But there is major scandal, which which happens because it's you know, tell us about Charlie Parker. Yeah, so Charlie Charlie Parker is obviously you know everybody in this room knows um, a fantastic saxophonist, and he had some pretty bad habits though. He was a basic out and out heroin user and abuser, and a lot of people had thought that the key to being able to play music well was to be a heroin addict. So unfortunately, he inspired a whole lot of musicians to do that. By the end, though, he, at this point, which is 1956, he's... And he's at his absolute lowest air, 55. He, uh, his wife has left him, his little child has died, he's tried to kill himself by drinking iodine, it hasn't worked. And on the night he turns up at Nika's hotel room, he is completely desperate. Now, the Stanhope is an absolutely 
um, you know, has an absolute policy. There are no blacks allowed in the Senate Hotel under any circumstances, except if they are working. And he rings from downstairs, and she goes downstairs, and she insists that Charlie Parker walk through the hotel up to her suite. And this is almost the last straw for the Stanhope Hotel. But never mind, that's what she's going to do. And she takes him upstairs, she gets her doctor, and the awful thing happens is that he dies. Parker, this is. And, um, of course, that is the, you know, the, the Stanhope now finally, they've been trying to evict her. They put up her, her room charges up, you know, by hundreds of percent each month. <laughs> And, and this doesn't was finally work. it. Doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, she, she was not going to have a friend of hers die in the street. It's very simple. I thought that was incredibly brave. And, I mean, there are, there are moments of great bravery through the book, particularly when she's faced with jail, um, yeah. with the choice between jail for her or freedom for, for, for Thelonious. Yeah. And she, she chooses jail for her. But um, just before I go to questions from the audience, which I will in a second, I mean, you talk about the, the ancient expectations. Um, that, that she has. You, did you feel those too? And, did, and how, how were they played out when you were writing the book? In what way? Sorry. Well, did the, I mean, your Aunt Miriam saying to you, you know, do you know nothing? Do you know anything about your family? Yeah. Were they, the, the, the family has traditionally been very secretive. Was it difficult yeah. for you doing it? And did you feel like you were risking anything by doing oh, that? Oh, yeah, hugely. No, if I'd had any idea what, what danger I was playing with, I wouldn't have done this. And I mean that absolutely seriously. Because the... the Secrecy had kept them safe, actually. I mean, I used to think they were secretive because they, you know, were, you know, because of their business. But actually, secrets kept many Jews safe, you know, throughout their long and tortured history. You know, you couldn't tell people where you were, and in fact, every or who you were, and every, every time a Rothschild died, they burnt all their belongings, all their possessions, and there were these vast bonfires. So, trying to find out about the family, trying to go back through time, was almost impossible. And she also, she died in 1988, which of course many people here was not even born then, but is when the internet, you know, started. So actually, again, that was another problem. And I did get some very hostile letters from family members saying, look, you know, leave them alone, leave the dead alone, and all we want to do is keep our head below the parapet. We don't want you talking about this. But, and they didn't want me talking about mental illness. But actually, personally speaking, as a member of the younger not generation, I mean, for me, it was so liberating to find out about the beginnings, to find out about the mental illness, to find out about the struggles. I can't tell you. I mean, it, re and it made me, for the first time, unbelievably proud of my family. I'll take questions from the yeah. audience. So, yeah, then Naomi, go. Hello. Um, regarding your album, Jazz Baroness, being transfixed by Thelonious Monk, considering what's happening with the Rothschild family now, which you know I'm going to ask uh, I didn't actually. So, so the, the, the question is <laughs> to do with the, the, the parallels between, between, between Nika and Thelonious and the story that's playing out currently largely in the pages of the Daily Mail uh, with, 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 with Kate Rothschild and Jay Electronic. I mean, the, the parallel, yeah. I guess, is that people are still interested right? yeah. and rebellion. I think, I think the re I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that when I, when I wrote the book, I thought, well, actually, you know, if that kind of thing happened today, no one would bat an eyelid. I really did think, I mean, maybe naively, I thought, you know, if Rothschild stayed, ran off with a, you know, a black musician, you know, who'd care? And I, you know, I was very, very surprised by how wrong I was. And I think that it puts it into a context of how unbelievably difficult it must have been for her and for her immediate family when she made that decision. Because obviously what seems kind of vaguely titillating or twitillating now was, was really <laughs> deeply, it's quite good though, isn't it? It was quite good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I can be like Fitzgerald and invent a word? <laughs> <laughs> totally orgastic. Totally orgastic. Yeah. Oh. 
So yeah, I think that's that's the most interesting thing about it is how. And actually, I have to say, I haven't met Jail Electronica, so I, haven't, I, haven't, I can't tell, give you any information on that one. Uh, 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 yeah, Naomi. <laughs> I'm really struck by the parallels also with, with the Gatsby story and that same sense that, that actually um, secrecy ends up being so important. I wonder how, how, how your family responded now that the book is just coming out there. Is there, still, is there a feeling that you've betrayed the family? Yes, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, one thing researching the book and talking to people and trying yeah. to get them to tell you stuff in that process, now the book is out there and they can see how well it's been received. Um, have they responded yeah. differently to you now? Well, I think it's been it's been a fantastic response, and I'm very very relieved and pleased and you know grateful actually. But the youngest, I mean, the younger you know, the generation below me, you know, said thank you so much for opening the doors and the windows. Um, Howard and I have a mutual friend, my aunt Victoria Rothschild, and she said she went and said Hannah, I just want you to know that I am the rebellious Rothschild. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to say a huge thank you to Hannah. We'll be back after a 15-minute interval. Thank you.